to Moses and Aaron. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. And by these, you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Good, good. You should be, you should be. So, as you know, we're preaching through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and most of you came back after we told you that, and so that's very heartening and encouraging to us. Um, Clayton and I, just in our study, have just been just learning a whole lot. There's just a whole lot more in these books than, than really I had ever thought before or, or we had really ever encountered. And, and I, I just tell you up front, at, at points, this sermon today is going to get a little Bible nerdy. And I'm not apologizing for that because I am a pastor, so part of my job is to be a Bible nerd. And, and I was just very struck by some of these things and want to share it with you as well. So that's the question, we, the, the imaginative prayer this morning was this story from Genesis where God comes over, and, and we see this theme repeated over and over throughout the scriptures that God comes to visit. And the question is, when he shows up at your house, what do you cook for him? What's his favorite food? And of course, you know, is there really an answer to that question? I, you know, that's, that's not really what concerns us this morning. But when you have someone over for dinner, as many of us have had during this year of eating with Jesus, it's wise to establish what foods and flavors your guests uh, cannot or will not eat. 
And a few weeks ago, I hosted a dinner party and made a dish that is traditionally very spicy. But I learned, thankfully, that only one of the people coming over really enjoyed spicy food. And so I adjusted the recipe. You know, just as an aside, this is, this is for free. This is not even part, it's not even in my, my notes here. But whenever you're doubting the goodness of God, which happens occasionally, just sit and consider the fact that food didn't have to taste like anything. It could have all just been kind of a bland paste. Every flavor you've ever experienced has been a good gift from your creator including the nasty ones, because they're a small reminder that the world is not about you. One day in China, and I have a few China stories because most of my food-related lessons have occurred in China, but during the beginning of my time there, a friend handed me a yellow popsicle. I trust this person, you know, thought, figured it was pineapple-flavored, bit into it, quickly discovered that it was, in fact, buttered corn. <clears throat> He loved it. A lot of my friends loved it. I never, never got around. They never convinced me about the buttered corn popsicles. It was disgusting. The question of God's flavor, God's favorite flavor, God's favorite food, is a small and perhaps a bit silly way to remind ourselves that we are not like him in his divine nature. We have no idea. I mean, I haven't answered this question, but we really don't have any idea how to even think about that. He's not like us. God is coming to live with you. How do you get ready for that? How do we prepare our lives for God to move in? And this is precisely what the book of Leviticus is about, how to prepare for God, how to clean the house, how to prepare the food. In other words, it's about holiness, shaping our lives in preparation for God. And of course, we're at a different place in the history of God's salvation than they were. They didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them in the way that we do. But I think there's a similar dynamic at play. How do we shape our lives to prepare for God? Therefore, be holy as I am holy is the refrain throughout Leviticus. We need to be holy to be with God. We must change we must, in fact, become new creations in order to live with him. The Bible tells us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made this world as a place where he could dwell with us. And in the beginning, all of creation could bear God's holy presence. There was no issue. He walked with them in the garden. But something happened. Adam and Eve disobeyed. They took food that was not offered to them, and sin and death took over the world. And now, all things stained, corrupted by sin and death cannot stand in the Creator's presence, including, unfortunately, you and I. And so the Creator called Abraham's family, Israel, to be holy, to be devoted to his work of mending the world and defeating sin and death. He rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. This is what we preached about last fall in the book of Exodus he bound himself to them in the covenant on Mount Sinai and gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was really intended to be a new Eden. And if you want to know more about that, ask next week at Sunday school, where God's space and human space could intersect, could overlap. 
With the tabernacle, God's desire to live with us was back on track. That's what that was about. And at the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, the cloud of God's glory comes and it fills the tabernacle so that the priests, it says, can't go inside. Well, now what? God's moved in, but how do we, in our state of sin and death, get close? And that is where the book of Leviticus begins. And Clayton talked last week about the sacrifices, meals offered to the Lord and sometimes shared with him that repaired the damage done by Israel's sin and exposure to uncleanness. Starting in chapter 11, the book pivots away from instructions to the priests towards instructions for the average Israelite. So it leaves behind what the priests are doing with the sacrifices at the temple, and it turns to what normal Israelites are meant to do every day in their own lives, right? Holiness in God's mission is not just about what happens at church, folks. It's about what happens also at home in our normal lives. While we are no longer bound to the specific details of Old Testament law, which is good because I enjoyed a bag of pork rinds yesterday. While we're no longer bound to the specific details of the Old Testament law, that does not mean that God does not care about the specifics of our lives. Now let me say that again. While we are no longer bound to the specific laws of the Old Testament, that does not mean that God does not care about the specifics of our lives. What we will hopefully see this morning is that our eating can be more than just getting energy from the stuff we put in our mouths. Food is about more than food. Eating can be holy. It can be a way to experience and declare the good news. And our sermon summary this morning is this. God's favorite food is gospel-flavored. God's favorite food is gospel-flavored. So we begin at the top of this passage in verse 1, and the first clue that we get that this is about more than just food is that we run into this concept of clean and unclean. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones that you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. Skipping down to verse 7, and the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. I think it's important just to say up front that clean and unclean, that distinction is not about good and evil or holy and common. They're related but it's not the same thing. Unclean things are not necessarily evil things. Uncleanness is the presence of or association with death and the henchmen of death, chaos, disease, darkness, etc. Persons can be unclean, objects can be unclean, places can be unclean, creatures can be unclean. So I guess basically everything. Anything can be unclean, anything can have an association or have the presence of death. And basically, the specifics of why, which animals, in which category, there's theories about that. We don't, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it does, but I don't want to talk about it this morning. But the, the point is, is that the unclean animals in different ways are somehow connected to or associated with death in the ancient Israelite mind. When a person is unclean, that is not an issue of sin. Now, I think sinful, sinful acts make you unclean, 
but just the fact of uncleanness itself is not a sin issue. It can become sin if you enter the tabernacle, get close to the holy things of God, while still being unclean. And the reason is not because God is picky. The reason is because death's kingdom ends where the presence of the God of life begins. You cannot bring the two together. They're like opposite poles on a magnet. But uncleanness itself is not about good and evil. Now sometimes, and this was part of the passage that we didn't read just because it's, it's just a lot, and you're welcome to, and you should probably go read it sometime else, but it's allowed if you find a dead animal in the field, like an antelope or something, you can eat that, like it's, it's not evil for you to do so, but you become unclean. Uh, and you have to wash your clothes and wait until the evening, and then you become clean again. But oftentimes, not just with this chapter, but throughout these next chapters of Leviticus that talk about clean and unclean, um, the matter of cleanness is just a matter of time. You have to sit and wait until the evening, and then the uncleanness leaves, and you are clean again. And for the Israelites, tomorrow begins at sundown today. Right? That's how they think of and reckon their days And so what that's saying there is that the new day makes a person clean. And I think that's good news all by itself. Humans are not inherently unclean. We're not, that's different from sin, right? But we are not made for death. And if you wait patiently, the new day will come and will raise you back to cleanness. This part occurred to me this morning, so I need to do more research, but I wonder if that is not a small pointer to the resurrection all by itself. You wait for the new day, and you're brought back to cleanness. The purpose of these food laws was to remind the Israelites of and give them a way to participate in the Creator's victory over death and its henchmen. And so it was the calling of every Israelite family to disassociate themselves from death And if, if, or when you try to read through Leviticus and you get bogged down in just all the, just the allness of it, the strange details, the repetition, remember that each one of these laws was a way of declaring that death has no place in God's good world. That's worth repeating, probably. It says in verse 45, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt out of slavery and bondage to evil forces, to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. And this idea of clean and unclean, I think it's really important for us to get straightened out, because if we don't, we will lose the goodness of what Leviticus is trying to say. Leviticus 11, in its very weird way, and we can admit it, it doesn't fit well into our modern way of thinking, But Leviticus 11 is a declaration that while death and its henchmen are all around us, skittering across the ceiling, buzzing around the table, chirping in the trees at night, life is flowing out from the presence of God. And that each of us, not only the religious professionals, each of us can experience and participate in his new creation life. Leviticus really is a book all about new creation. And I know it doesn't seem like it, at, at just a surface reading or when you, you know, but, it, but there's just so much in there and I wanted to share, this is the Bible nerdy part, I wanted to share a few bits that I was just blown away by. There are 
a host of connections between our chapter, Leviticus 11, and Genesis. I'll just point out two of them. The big one, oh, excuse me. Yeah, there are connections between our chapter and Genesis, and what that shows us is that what the Israelites are doing in sorting the clean animals from the unclean animals is a work of new creation. So verse 46 This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. And if you're ever in some kind of a high-stakes Bible trivia competition, this fact will be very, very important to you. That word distinction is very important. Other places, it's translated as separate. And it makes its first couple of appearances in Genesis chapter 1. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated. God made a distinction between the light and the darkness. In Genesis 1, God created the world by separating one thing from another. And as you read through the days, that's what he does. He speaks and he separates the light from the darkness, the waters above from the waters below, the dry land from the waters For the Israelite to make the distinction, to do the same action between clean and unclean, is to make the same choices that the Creator did. Genesis is happening over again in these food laws. If that's not new creation, I don't know what is. And if you read over the list of animals carefully, you may notice an interesting absence, specifically in the reptile category. Snakes are not mentioned by name. Though verse 42 does describe whatever goes along on its belly as being detestable. That phrase, whatever goes along on its belly, I'm not making this up, it happens two times in the Bible. (laughs) Once here in Leviticus 11, and the other time, for all the money, where else does it happen? In Genesis chapter 3, when God curses the serpent for leading humanity astray. Dad, I guess you get all the money. This is a solid clue that these food laws are about way more than just what food the Israelites can and cannot eat. A new genesis, a new creation, is being brought forth right under the serpent's nose. But why did God start with food? If you think about it, you would think murder or war or... I don't know, something else would be the first, you know, we're going to tell the normal Israelites how to live in new creation, and to do that, we will begin by talking about what's for dinner. Why does he begin there? Jesus made all foods clean, and so as Christians, I think we have not spent as much time thinking about holiness and food together as as our Jewish forebears did and indeed still do. But it makes sense that the meal is where the first battle lines are drawn in the war against sin and death. Food is one of the most important things in human life. It binds cultures together. It brings families together. And you need it. You can't not eat. And think of the biblical story as a whole in our own lives. Where does the enemy hit to rip human lives apart? He sows sows discord between cultures in the midst of families and in our individual lives. Food, after all, is what wrecked the universe with Adam and Eve. 
We interact with food every day, and each meal is an opportunity for the powers of darkness to attack. But meals are also opportunities to declare and to experience the good news and the victory of God. And this play is on the eating with Jesus theme that we've been harping on all year. And if you're sick of hearing about that, I don't care. We're going to keep talking about it. I don't know how long, but we're continuing for that to be our theme. When Jesus gave us a practice to remember his sacrifice, bind us together, and anticipate his coming, he gave us a meal. He gave us food, and we cannot emphasize that more strongly. And it should also be no surprise that the devil has broken the global church into a million pieces around the meal that Jesus gave to bind us and unite us all together. The dinner table is a battlefield. Those of you familiar with family tensions and unspoken hurt know exactly what I'm talking about. God knows this. Leviticus 11 tells us that he's there at the table alongside us. God cares about food. He cares about our cultures, our families, ourselves. Food is ordinary and evidently can be holy. That means that holiness is not something that we only bring out on special occasions. Every time we open our mouths to eat or drink, that can be a holy thing, getting us ready for God. I said earlier in the, the, the uh, sermon summary for this morning is that God's favorite food is gospel-flavored. And, uh, and I know that questions like these probably don't occur to anybody outside of my own brain, but it made me sit and think about, well, I wonder what the gospel tastes like. <clears throat> Warm bread, maybe? Cold water? And also the cornbread casserole that someone always makes for the potlucks? And also the coffee cake that the women in mission force me to eat. You know who you are. The gospel tastes like God's many good flavors brought to us by God's people. God's favorite anything is everything that smacks of human beings finding new life in Christ and being made part of his family. And while in Jesus we are free from the specifics of the food laws... Jesus is still in the business of destroying the works of the evil one and making all things new. We are still invited to participate in new creation, to experience, and to extend that out into the world. It doesn't matter anymore what we eat. Well, maybe a little, but for the most part, it doesn't matter what we eat, but rather how and with whom we eat. And I'm aware of what a poor idea it is for the preacher to spend the entire sermon talking about food at this point in the late morning. So I will briefly set before you two possibilities, and there are others, but these are the two that I decided on for our holy eating, for what does it look like for new creation to be part of our eating. The first is about how we eat, and the second is about with whom we eat. Firstly, and don't take this the wrong way, <laughs> Almost all of us probably need to submit our diets to the Lord Jesus. And I did not just call my church fat. Let me just be very clear about that. This is part of the sermon because I need to hear it. <clears throat> I watch my weight, but the problem is that I only watch it go up. <clears throat> Many of us have issues with food and are not overweight, right? It's not just about overeating. Some of us hate eating and do it as little as possible. Some of us eat our feelings, me, 
Some of us eat just because there's nothing else going on. Me. Many of us never fast because why in McDonald's name would we ever deprive ourselves of food? All of these things are failures to receive with gladness the good things that God has created. We see in this passage that Israel's eating is limited. There's only so many animals they're actually allowed to eat. They could not eat whatever they wanted. And again, Jesus makes all foods clean, so this isn't about what, necessarily, but really how. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, another chapter about eating and uncleanness and all this kind of thing, he concludes it with, so whatever, or excuse me, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so my first recommendation is to make the new creation choice to submit our diets with whatever that looks like for you to Jesus and not to our own desires. Secondly, our meals become holy things when we invite others to join us. No surprises there. Again, we've been saying it all year. Have each other over for dinner. It's nothing special, and that's the point. The kingdom consists of small things that have a lasting and transformative impact, yeast and salt and estranged children coming home for a feast. When Jesus made all foods clean, that wasn't only so that Peter could finally have bacon, although maybe that was part of it. It was so that Peter could finally start eating with Gentiles, with people outside the social sphere. And I think one of the barriers to really doing this, and not even just with cross-cultural, but I think even different families. I've, a friend of mine and I were talking about how in some families, food is kind of flavored, tends to be flavored this way, and then in other families, it kind of tends to be flavored that way, and it can be hard for those things to meet. One of the barriers to doing this is having to learn how to eat foods that we're not used to. Nothing triggers disgust and feelings of uncleanness faster than a bad taste, a bad flavor. And I didn't know this until I moved to China, that all of the food there is incredibly spicy. More spicy than anything I had eaten back home. So I had a choice when I discovered this. I could either go, still go eat with my friends and suffer, or try to cook American food at home, which some of my teammates did, no judgment, and risk losing the relationships, right? Because if you're not out and about with people, you lose those opportunities. And one of my first meals, it was pork, sorry, Lord, pork and green peppers and rice and things. And it was so, so spicy that tears and snot and sweat <laughs> poured forth from me throughout the entire meal. And the guys running the restaurant, we called it the peanut gallery because they served roasted peanuts, just laughed at me the whole time. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard. You go to China already knowing that it's a good idea to pray before you put the food in your mouth, and you leave China knowing it's a good idea to pray before, during, and after it comes out the other end. <clears throat> the point being that that spicy food was literally detestable to me, but it was made holy by eating with other people in the name of Jesus. You too can step out of your comfort zones, and I know many of us have, and I want to commend you to continue to do that and eat with others, though hopefully with more pleasant consequences. This is how Jesus thinks of food. It glues people together. It does not drive them apart. Death, we've seen, is the ultimate contaminant. It turns everything to dust. 
Every corpse is unclean. Whether it's an unclean animal or a clean animal, once it's dead, it's equally unclean. And it says this here in verse 39, if any animal which you may eat dies, whatever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. The text doesn't ever spell this out, but if you think through the laws, if you eat a dead animal, it's unclean, even if it's a clean one. If you find an antelope or a cow or whatever, you can eat it, a dove, but it makes you unclean, which we don't want to do. The only way to eat clean meat was to share in one of the sacrificial meals offered to God. Unclean animals are related to death, but the clean animals are related to life, specifically to the sacrifices. The clean animals that the people would have eaten most, I don't know how often they really had fish, they didn't fish much in ancient Israel, but until the time of Jesus, the, the, the animals they would have eaten most were the same set that were offered to Yahweh himself, cows and goats and sheep. In order to remain clean, the Israelites had to quite literally eat off the Lord's table. Yes, Leviticus 11 says, death and its henchmen are everywhere and need to be avoided. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the feast shared from the Lord's own table. This is what God means when he tells us to be holy. It turns out that you don't cook anything for God. He brings it all with him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, says Psalm 34. In the life, death, and raising again of Jesus, God not only offers us all good things, he offers us himself. On the cross, the creator became the sacrifice, the clean offering whose blood purifies his people. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the practices of communion and hospitality, we share in the bread of life. God's favorite food is gospel-flavored, and we can season our meals with good news by wisely considering both how and with whom we eat in light of Christ's death and rising again. And I'll close with a brief quote from one of my favorite books. It's sort of a theological cookbook similar to Leviticus, called The Supper of the Lamb. That intrigues you, then you should read it because it's really wonderful and quite a few good recipes. But the author says this, Man invented cooking before he thought of nutrition. To be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish and prepare our sensibilities for the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how generous and gracious our Lord is. Nourishment is only necessary for a little while. What we shall need forever is taste. May we taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.